Welcome to From Stage to Screen and Everything in Between, a musical adjacent podcast. I'm your host. I'm your host. I hope they don't talk about freaking, I want them to talk about monster trucks and baseball. Mm-hmm. What? I don't want them to talk about freaking musicals. I, watch, I had to watch one of those in school. One of only 10 musicals to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying swept the Tony Awards and became a star vehicle. But do the film and its subsequent versions rise to the top, or do they stick to the company way? Let's discuss. This is From Stage to Screen and Everything in Between, a musical-adjacent podcast. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. I'm Quinn. And I'm Elizabeth. Hey, we got through it without it. We did. <laughs> I had to take, <laughs> take a moment to celebrate. That's to say your names over Zoom like that in subsequent order, not as easy as you might imagine. So, yeah. Also, mine has too many syllables. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like Elizabeth. you all have these nice little succinct Zach, Quinn, Mads, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Ekamanardella. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly. Oh my god, I am not getting another hyphen. They're just going away. It's just going to be simple. <laughs> simple Kelly. Control alt delete. Yeah. <laughs> well, everyone, I am pleased to announce that I have never seen this musical at all and zero prior knowledge of what the heck this was about. I didn't even know that it won a Pulitzer, you know? It was it was yeah. literally just another one of those shows. I knew that Fosse did it. My guy, anything that he's ever touched has turned to gold. I don't never done a flop in his mm. life. Mm. Fact check me, people. I want you to. I want you. No, it's not true. But anyways, yeah, it was another one of those shows that I was so astounded by uh, because I had no uh, prior connection to, it. and it was fantastic. Yeah, I, uh, I've always had it in the back of my head. I think the '90s revival really kind of put it back on the map in the musical theater world. So it was kind of there when I was a kid, when I actually got started. Mm-hmm. Um, the logo for the nineties one where it's like the H two dollar sign or whatever, like has just kind of always been floating around in my consciousness somewhere. Mm-hmm. But said that said, I've never seen it before. Uh, I know brotherhood of man. I watched Daniel Radcliffe twiddle his little legs around in uh, the Tony's performance a couple years ago. That guy is a God, top. More than a couple years ago. That was almost a decade ago. Anyways. Um, that guy, you pull a string and he just, you, you throw him in the air and he just takes off like a helicopter. He's a freaking <laughs> singer, dancer, wizard. He could literally do it all. I was going to say he's not a wizard for nothing. Wizard. Yeah. <laughs> he's great. Yeah, that's all I knew about this show was that Daniel Radcliffe looked real cute dancing. Otherwise, nothing. He just has such, I don't know, I feel like his thighs, if you were to knock on it, it would probably hurt your knuckles. You know what I mean? Just a dancer's body. That's we're going to we're going down an avenue. <laughs> we're going down an avenue that's not Quinn allowed. Quinn wants his hands on Daniel Radcliffe's thighs. All right, that's everybody, what I from if that. your kids were out of the room, you can bring them back in now. My outbursts are over. <laughs> Honestly, that poor man's probably hurt worse. Let's be honest. Oh, true. Oh, yeah. You know how people are on the internet where they like uh, they go on their little now their blogs. I've heard him tell stories. Oh what, no, people just that's try sad. Knocking on his yeah. thighs. I thought you were talking about the fanfics where they yes. do like oh. yeah. That's unfortunate. That's where they like do the what? 
you know, I feel people... like they have to put that. You don't want to know. What's a fanfic? My fan, my, my fanfic is where Dan Radcliffe's character, the window washer, stays a window washer, and then he has a romantic rendezvous with his fellow window washer. <laughs> oh no! Is it like some fandom porn? Kind of. That that <laughs> I mean, fanfics are just fan fictions where they make up like oh in this alternate universe this could have happened yeah. and or like on an ordinary sometimes day sometimes they have like literary merit as like writing but most of the time most they of do them not. are sort of shipping weird relationships like yeah. the majority of the ones that i'm aware of and that daniel radcliffe is aware of are ones with like harry potter and malfoy for some reason yeah. they have a relationship and that's like there's a whole bunch of that. There's a whole bunch of terms like slash fiction and stuff. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that. We have gone down a wormhole. I don't know. I can necessarily say I agree with it. All right. Just let's like, pick up our. Yeah. Let's let's stop this. Anywho, <laughs> I'm gonna uh, just say it's because you brought up his thighs is where that started. <laughs> I can't yeah. stop thinking about him. One frame of watching him on the Tonys. I want to give those thighs a tone. Right, I don't. I'm not. That's wrong. I don't, Elizabeth, what was your prior knowledge? He's a perfectly fine, okay show. guy. Okay. Please exclude anything about Daniel's thighs. Will do. Um, I had. I've heard of the show because of Daniel Radcliffe being in it, and I believe I saw some of the clip at the Tonys and was like, "Oh my god, he can sing! Who knew?" Um, mm. That was it. I didn't know any of the shows. Wasn't familiar with the script. Uh, I hadn't heard anything, didn't even know that there was a movie version of it, but yeah, yeah. so no knowledge whatsoever, went in blind, and I liked it a lot. It was really funny. Oh, I mean, I guess we'll talk about it when the movie comes, but geez, there is so, so much just, I, I it's non-realistic. It's a non-realistic presentation where they're all, Which I don't know, I wish great. you guys could see me, just how they're smiling and laughing and... Yeah. And uh, I think it made me laugh, had a great energy, um, had like a non-realistic approach where everybody's smiling and dances happen and it's like cheeky. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's sort of I, I it's one of the most effective uses of comedy in a musical I've seen in a while. It was so amusing. I loved it. It's super sharp satire, too. Like yes. The wit. And like it's really, really pointed, you know, and I'm assuming for the time, even from a distance, I can tell that it's pretty on the nose, like accurate. Yeah. But I'm sure back then people were like, oh, <laughs> I've experienced this. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I'll just come out and say it as somebody who is an avid, avid, avid fan and watcher of the TV show Mad Men, which is praised as being one of the most realistic uh, corporate office culture representations from the 1960s. It is so fascinating. Um, it's It provides a very, very good backdrop for watching this. So if you are a fan of Mad Men, I, I certainly suggest watching this movie because A, Burt Cooper uh, is in it and it will blow your mind with that respect. But also like there's so many it's 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 sort of the same story told in a different fashion because it's just like the it's mostly what stuck out to me is the struggles of the women in the office because and so many of the songs, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into this right now, but so many of the songs were just so like satire, you know, a smart, yeah. smart satire that I think was very subversive for its time. For the for the first time, you've managed to name drop Mad Men and it actually 
makes sense. Hey, <laughs> if ever I can, I'm going to throw in a quick little boom to my favorite television shows. Yeah. I, I feel like the casting of Robert Morse in Mad Men must be intentional. Oh, it has to. Yeah, totally. Because um, this, yeah, this is such sharp satire of the business world. Yeah. And Mad Men is totally hearkening back to that. Yeah. Uh, hey, Mads. Hey. What is the history of this show? How did we get here? There was a musical? <laughs> I just love the book. <laughs> what? <laughs> So originally, this was actually a book by Shepard Mead, is what I have as the author. Um, then there was a play based on that book uh, hmm. by Jack Weinstock and Willie Gilbert, which went unproduced for a really long time. Nobody did it. And then uh, it got turned into a musical. Uh, the music and lyrics by Frank Lesser. Uh, the book by A. Burroughs, who also directed it. Um, it opened at 46th Street Theater on October 14th, 1961, and it ran for 1,417 performances. Wow. That's yeah. a good long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. And it, ran, it got a lot of Tonys and awards, too. Obviously, we already said this, it got the 1962 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. What a rarity. Uh, Which just doesn't happen. There have been pretty much one for every decade that... Uh, the prize has existed yeah yeah for the most part i mean it's it's a it's probably the most coveted uh prize in the librettists circle those who write musical theater in the writing world yeah, yeah. who else has won one i know rent has one lin-manuel rent. miranda for hamilton yeah. hamilton mm. hamilton next uh, to sunday normal. in the park with george has one next to normal yep. uh of uh, the I sing got Fiorello. one. Fiorello. Um, and then just just this year on May fourth, uh, another show that I don't recall the name of, uh, what became the tenth musical to win. It's the only off Broadway show that's ever won yeah. the Pulitzer. What show? So that said, it's a it's a fairly coveted prize, and it's very rare. Uh, the criteria is that it has to comment on the state of the American people. I believe, um, and I think the show obviously does that. Um, it's very with the satire. The show that won uh, most recently was a Playwrights Horizon show uh, back from 2019 uh, by Michael R. Jackson called A Strange Loop, and it is, like I mentioned, the first off-Broadway show to ever win the award. Uh, mm. Huge, huh. huge news when that dropped. Um, kind of a bold step uh, for the Pulitzer Committee to choose that show, but it was fantastic. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's very good. Cool. Wow. Uh, it also won seven Tonys. I think it was nominated wow. for eight or nine, and it won seven. Wow. Sheesh. Uh, the original one. Uh, yeah. It won Best Musical, uh, Best Author of a Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actor, Robert Morse, uh, Best Performance by a Featured Actor, Charles Nelson Reilly, uh, Best Direction of a Musical, A. Burroughs won that one. Uh, best producer, best conductor, and musical director, and it even won uh, a Grammy award for best musical theater album. Wow, is that? Yeah, interesting because some I don't remember that in some of the other musicals that we've covered. So fantastic that yeah. they were able to do that. Uh, there seems to be a theme with uh, winning best musical and trying to and pulling in that Grammy at mm. a certain time. It doesn't happen so much anymore, but. 
at a certain time, I feel like the album became more popular than it does now. Yeah. I mean, that was truly in the age before the internet, that, that was the way that if you lived in a small town, that was the way you got to, uh, experience a, a Broadway musical. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah, it swept the Tonys this year, uh, 1962. Um, it's the only, I think the only, the main other show that won was, um, a man for all seasons. Mm. And who knows that one? <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> that's a that's an incredibly famous piece of drama. But anyway. Oh sure. Get on it. Watch the movie. It's real good. <laughs> Once yeah. again, well, I don't know if you're pulling myself. my leg. It's hard over. No, video. I genuinely don't know what that is. I. Oh, you should. Does anybody know what that is? Does anybody no know? There's this guy. Well, he was in uh, Streetcar Named Desire and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Uh, what's his name? I don't even know who has anyone heard of him? We're off all of the rails. <laughs> has anybody <laughs> heard of that guy? Everywhere. Hey, I'm not the only one who can have foolish moments. All right. I have to pull other people down with me. <laughs> <laughs> Good gravy. Yes. Man for all seasons. Look it up, huh? You if it. you don't know it like me, yeah. educate yourself. Yes. <laughs> so uh all the different productions of this, I think there's like six in total. Wow. Uh, you have the original 1961 Broadway, uh, 1963 opened on the West End two years later. And then you have the film immediately after 1967. Hmm. Uh, 1995 is uh, the first Broadway revival. That was the one where uh, Matthew Broderick starred in it and he got a Tony for that one. Um, then you have, uh, the 1996 U.S. tour after the first revival and the 2011 Broadway revival with Daniel Radcliffe. Boy, did they milk his image. All I can remember from that version is his face on every poster, every TV spot, every uh, billboard that you can uh, muster. Nick Jonas and, uh, Darren Chris also just. They took over it or what? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Nick Jonas. Wait, what? Yeah, Nick Jonas. I did closed not the know that. Hold on. Um, Isn't Darren Chris the guy that also did the Harry Potter musical that's Harry on Potter YouTube? Musical, yeah. That's yes. hilarious. That two Harry Potters also played two Finches. That's true. <laughs> that's funny. Weird. I hadn't thought of that before. He because I know him more for like Glee. He became famous for Glee and other stuff. But that's funny. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah. So we had two Harry Potters, and. Uh, I want to be uh, Marius. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. Folks. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Nick Jonas. Bang, 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 baby. Um, <laughs> that was, and it's the that's the only time that uh, the person who played Finch didn't win a Tony, which is interesting. But John LaRocquette did win for playing uh, JB Big, JB Bigley. Oh yeah, he got the he got the he supporting best actor. actor. Yeah, I do love him. He's in Tenth Kingdom. Which is one of my favorite miniseries. Got to name drop that every time I can. I gotta find. I gotta find a TV series that I love to drop in. Everybody gets episodes, their one man. show. All right. I know. Yeah, I claim Tenth Kingdom and because Tenth Kingdom's already more. showed up. Mad Men's already showed up. Fosse Verdon, yeah, is also up there. Mine. Yeah, <laughs> Steve Urkel. You said Glee. Uh, yeah, but I don't actually like Glee. <laughs> No offense to anybody else. Did you know that they once did a song from this in Glee? What if I mentioned that during every musical we covered? You know, it's the same thing with the whole Daniel Radcliffe being in the show. If 
that's how people get to know these older shows, you know. Is yeah. No, I agree. I don't want to be exclusive at all. Definitely. It's definitely stunt casting. Let's be honest. We'll yeah. be completely upfront. It's stunt casting. But, but he was good. It does bring people to know the show. I've he was okay. Mm. <laughs> I thought he was pretty wooden. But that's that's here's the thing. Matthew Broderick and Robert Morse are so fluid and like funky and weird in this part. Like just when we think of Matthew Broderick, you know, think of like a combination between all of his famous roles. You know, that's kind of what this part you is. You get it's the happy like, medium, yeah. It's got the poise of Ferris Bueller, but the goofiness of uh, Leo Bloom, you know, from producers. Yes. It's kind of got a mix of both. And then Robert Morris is, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what drugs he's, he's smoking, but he made such, such a force great of choices. Real, yeah. He was like a, his choices are so strong. It's he's so like funny. like a combo of Matthew Broderick and uh, Mark Hamill and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like maybe a little bit of the guy that plays you you would either know him as Simon from Misfits or more likely Ramsey Bolton from Game of Thrones. Like those three people, <laughs> if you just combine them, that's like yeah. Robert Morris. He's he's a kooky guy. I mean, yeah. and now that he's an older guy, I mean, he's even more kooky, you know. He's, he's even more kooky, yeah. Cuz he's kind of like a sweet cute old man now, you know, as opposed to just a weird <laughs> early 20s. Eccentric whatever. is an understatement for his yeah. acting style, and I, I think mean, it's a crowning achievement. The choices that he make and when we get to the movie we'll talk more about it, but they just kind of let him go with it in the movie too. Yeah. I wonder how much of that they were just like, it worked on stage, go for it. Do it. He's just like putting his face up against other people's faces. He's he's like crouching at their knees and like like leaning into the, like all sorts and of. the faces he makes are the best. Oh, yeah. yeah. His facial expressions are I mean, best. I think like, I mean, we can talk about this later too, but I think that's why he didn't do a lot of movies afterwards is because he was so mm. eccentric. It didn't really work for a lot of things. Yeah. He did a lot of voice acting and was like sort of one off on TV shows where he mm-hmm. would just kind of make appearances. But he did a lot of voice work, hmm. which he would be great for. I think yeah. he's just too powerful for most applications. <laughs> like you put him in a Honestly, role though, and I he's agree. like, whoa, look at that guy go. You know what I mean? Yeah. He kind of he kind of defined this role, you know, that he you can find like video upon video of him doing it for the next like. 30 years before the revival mm-hmm. like there's just videos of him occasionally popping up at Tony's or like PBS specials just to sing like I believe in you <laughs> or, or huh. Brotherhood of Man you know yeah. like he became synonymous 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 he became synonymous with this show and I think it's deserved yeah um, and it's one of the rare instances where uh we haven't talked about it so much in other adaptations but it's always not so much the best choice to take the uh, leading star from the Broadway version and put them in the film mm. adaptation. But right. if mm. they had gone with any other choice for this movie, I yeah. would have cried. I mean, it would have been tragic because that guy is a hero. You oh, know? I agree. And it's well-researched. I mean, I so much of his choices are are landed in like how it feels in you know that pseudo-business world. And it's so, yeah. so thematically strong, which is... Yeah. Rare for an individual actor to do that. Yeah. And the comedy is still so tight. Yes. Like it, 
it feels like it could go off the rails and get really just like self-serving, like absurd, like Tim and Eric weird, you know, (laughs) but it doesn't like it still stays. It stays in a realm of like satire, you know, Mm -hmm. that that is applicable to all people. And, you know, every live version that I've watched of this, people are just losing their minds with laughter. Like, you know, it's there's some and I think that's a testament to the book as well. Yeah, um, for sure. Oh, the yeah. book is really sharply written. Um, as Mads pointed out, it was because it has a weird like triple credit uh, for the book, for the libretto. Not the libretto, sorry, for the book. And that's Abe Burroughs, who we know from Guys and Dolls. Him and Frank Lesser did that together. But then we have these other two guys who, if you look them up, like they barely even get a stub on Wikipedia. Like it's a tiny little article. And the only reason they have credit is because they wrote a play based on the book, like Mad said, that never went anywhere. So they get credit for, like, the character names are the same and, like, the plot is basically the same. Mm -hmm. But, like, none of the dialogue got carried over into the musical version. Yeah. And so I think uh, Burroughs and Lesser really did a one-two punch. And, you know, it's, it's really sharp and really witty and really great. And I think uh, that yeah. that is it speaks to it's how well well crafted it is in that it it takes a lot of like I hate to say it but like professional skill to I don't know just like work with the actors and tune it so well yeah. that the jokes are there mm-hmm. I don't know it's hard to describe and it's once you see it and once you see the movie I think you'll realize yeah. uh, where all those moments are yeah and you can tell the actors themselves know it too it like. They managed to find like a full cast of people that just know that timing and know how to make it work and play it, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's well written, well casted, and well directed. Also yeah. well choreographed. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to say, uh, Elizabeth? Oh, I was just going to agree that a lot of it also had to do with the timing. Like on paper, the jokes were funny, but with the timing, it was even better and even yeah funnier and that was a lot of the reactions that the audience would laugh at or react to and even whether it was the show or the movie it was always the timing that was just like so perfect that made it Mm -hmm. even funnier than it would have been just as written and they kind of they kind of wink at you a lot yeah they give you they give you the opportunity to be like uh you see what we did there yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. quinn wanted to talk about choreography uh Funny story. So Bob Fosse is only credited as musical staging in the original. What does that mean? Well, musical staging is a thing. Basically, any movement that happens in the show falls under musical staging. A lot of musicals, the director won't actually stage the scenes that have music. So like transition moments. I hate to use a generic layman's term, but like walking around the stage, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. The director will block the scenes with dialogue and then musical staging is any transitions, movement of background people, set pieces. Um, Interesting. That said, the only reason Fosse has that credit is because he allowed it to be that way because he didn't want to ruin the career of the guy that he replaced Mm. Um, they were gonna fire him his name was Hugh Lambert yeah they hired a guy based on the merits of one dance number they saw him do and when they got in the rehearsal room they realized oh that's all he's got <laughs> Get they realized the guy was spent and they wanted to fire him and they called in Bob Fosse and Fosse yeah. was like I, I just don't want to ruin this guy's career if you fire him 
Everyone's yeah. gonna see that on his record. He'll never work again. Oh, it's what like, a nice so, guy! I know, right? And so I knew he I loved choreographed <laughs> the entire show pretty much. Wow! And only took a musical staging credit and still gave Hugh Lambert the choreography credit. That seems that seems almost out of character. I mean, usually right? my perception of him is this over controlling my 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 show. Get out That's of my exactly way! The thought I had. Yeah. Same. Apparently he's a cool guy. Who knew? Yeah, he has the ability to be. You get on the phone with Bobby, he'll solve problems for you. You know, <laughs> he'll run through the numbers again. He'll clean up some of the ends. He'll get you in there. Tech week, doesn't matter. He'll throw in new numbers. He'll write stuff. He'll write book. He doesn't care. He's Bob Fosse. He'll do anything. That's he's a superhero. That's the Fosse way. He's on drugs. The Fosse Fanny working its tail, you know? You get the, you get <laughs> the Fosse Fanny in the hall. I don't care what that musical's a hit. Like I said, he's never had a flop. Not a single movie that he's acted in, sang in, directed, written. Nothing he's ever touched has done anything less than been 150% successful. Economically, culturally, in every sense of the word. Fact check me, please. I thought Kiss Me Kate lost money. Yeah. Wrong. <laughs> when your, you've been your commitment to overcommitting is admirable. Wrong. <laughs> Sweet charity movie? Don't bring it up again. <laughs> we'll talk about that later folks <laughs> they did keep the guys one dance number and they used it for like the intro to the treasure girl scene well <laughs> they they used pieces, pieces of, it. of it man sucks to be that guy <laughs> sucks to be that guy this is um this is the second week in a row we have a show where the music was written by somebody who's primarily known as a songwriter as well uh, we got our, our man Frank Lesser here, uh, who is theatrically known for Guys and Dolls. Yes. Which I think um, the songs are just as good, but uh, Guys and Dolls seems to get more recognition, probably because of it was earlier and you had Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra in the movie. Um, but I'm not sure why, because I think they're both equally good shows. Honestly, though, the book for this one is a lot tighter than Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Guys and Dolls has its moments of meh. Um, He's also responsible for the most talked about Christmas song on <laughs> Facebook, yep. Baby It's Cold Baby Outside. It's cold <laughs> Love it or hate it, he wrote it. <laughs> Fun fact, though, him and his wife wrote it to sing with each other at parties. Oh, that's kind of sweet. Which I think, personally, you can, you can, you know, you can burn me at the stake, but personally, I don't think the song is that bad. Uh, it's just from a different time. Look, Hot they're take. flirting with each other. That's what the song is. That's what I got to say about it. Oh. Hot takes. That's further evidence. That's further evidence towards that point is that him and his wife wrote it to sing with each other. And apparently, according to her, they got invited to so many parties just so they could be the closing act to sing that song with each other. Aww. I'll have you know... My hot take regarding that song is not necessarily that it is so controversial. It is more so, why are there so many Christmas songs, but not enough Easter songs? It's my favorite holiday. Why aren't there more songs? Okay. That's my hot take, folks. I need answers. If we're honest, like, is that even a Christmas song? It just is about winter. It's just about yeah. it being freaking cold. That's outside. a good point. Yeah. You could sing it in February. You, you could. could. You could. Yeah. He won an Academy Award for that song. His wife was furious when he sold the rights to it, though, because 
as she put it, it felt like he was in bed with another woman. <gasps> she was so mad about him wow. saying the rest of the song. Because it was a personal song. But he won an Academy Award for it. See, this is and why... made a lot of money. This so. is why you come to our podcast for stuff you didn't even know how to story. <laughs> you wanted yeah, to exactly. learn uh, all about how to succeed in business without really trying. Instead, we're going to give you Baby It's Cold Outside. Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> Instead, we're going to list all the songs we think could qualify for Easter songs. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Anywho, um, that's Frank Lesser. So this show, I don't want to cut anybody off. If we're in the middle of a no, flow, please stop me. Stick a sock in my mouth, all right? However, this show had a set that was acted in front of. Uh, and I just want to pay a little bit of reverence to that You fact. don't say. Uh, wow. As is the case with Hold a lot on, of stuff we talked this, about. This show had a set that people acted in front of? Wow, mind-blowing. I mean. That is you could say, though, that the, the, in the, genre. the two revivals had sets that people acted behind as well. So. <gasps> Ooh, we'll talk uh, about that. We'll talk about that because those revival sets were also fascinating, and the movie set as well. Um, also fascinating is is a device. I think my best, and I encourage everyone, please go on Playbill.com and look up original photos from the uh, this 1961 production because the set is. It follows this very much theme of not being realistic and being cheeky and being a wink and a nod uh, because. It does not look like a realistic portrayal of the New York City uh, backdrop. It is, it's an interesting outline, cartoonish, lines aren't straight, um, and it's oblong and modern and 60s and, and colorful and a lot of the trends of that time. So I think the set design really reflects a lot of uh, those timely themes. Um, let's get some credits in here. The set and lighting design, much in the uh, tradition of the time, was direct was designed by uh, Robert Randolph, who as well uh, designed the set for another Bob Fosse show, Sweet Charity. And the costume design was by uh, a gentleman named Robert Fletcher. Hair designed by Ronnie DeMann, because as you know, uh, there are is a high emphasis on hair as a character in some of the numbers of this show because of just the time period. So I just, I don't yeah. know, I just thought it was, uh, it's the set in both the movie and in the show is a character in and of itself because it's so unique and, and funny and colorful. Kind of a side thought based on that, you know, because it is a show in its time. You know, the show takes place in the time that it was written and yes. presented for the first time. And... How often does that happen anymore? You know, that's I think that I can't I can't think of any examples of recent times. I think that speaks like you're saying just to a show becomes more so a show and more of a zeitgeist cultural institution and goes on to get the attention of, you know, the Pulitzer Committee when it is a it's a very perfect work of theater and b it's it's perfect slotted into its time. Um, mm-hmm. I think another show like that is a show like Rent, um, That's where yeah. it's it too. perfectly fits into its time. That's true. If it was produced at any other moment in history, it wouldn't have the same impact. Uh, but Absolutely. just because it was so much on the minds of New York people, and and think of the average Broadway audience. You know, think of the people yeah. in the '60s who were going to see Broadway shows. It was people who worked in offices on Madison Avenue. You know, so. I think reviving shows like that becomes difficult because 
they weren't written to be a period piece, but then they become a period piece the further and further you get away from the original production, you know? Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, I spent time watching the Matthew Broderick 1990s revival. Yeah. It wasn't, it was, it seemed even less so realistic. It almost seemed sort of like a cartoon or a fantasy work, you know? It was purely Mm -hmm. fiction. It didn't seem like any of what was going on could ever happen in an office. Um, Yeah. So I think that was just... That it did and it could, you know, and some of the aspects still do, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, that even some of the satire, even some of the, you know, the pointedness has aged poorly now, you know, at the time, like its approach to uh, the treatment of secretaries could be seen as fairly progressive. But now it's it's has like a you know a little bit of a tinge of misogyny still. Even you with know? the attention paid to what they were trying to do with their usage of, you know, the women characters in the show, yeah, it's still hard to watch. I think because I think it was funny back then, but now especially where the scenes where you know gentlemen are leaning over yeah. women or putting their hands on women or women feel scared you know that sort of stuff i think is just too too uh on the uh i don't know i think americans think about it too much now not too much i mean you can't think about that enough because it's a pertinent issue and it should be thought about and it's talked on about your mind. but yeah. it's on it's Whereas, on your mind and it's hard to laugh at something like that even going back you know 20ish years to the 90s reversion Watching that, there's moments of like, oof, like they're trying to make it. I don't know. It's hard to explain because the commentary, you can see that it was meant to be a commentary, but it just hasn't carried over, I guess is the point. It's hard to package. To it's just like a lot, the, way. a lot of the, a lot of the, you can't, yeah, you can't really pretend like it. You can't, there's not really a way to spin it. You know, you're like the misogyny is the misogyny, you know, and I think it is good that it puts a microscope on it, but it still just feels uncomfortable in the time Mm -hmm. or out of the time rather yeah and it's such a it's what what i I was gonna say is that it's such a big issue now and still so relevant i would say just as relevant as back in the 60s but there's much more of a microscope on it now as you said and so it's hard to accept that packaged in a box of satire yeah that's a much better way of saying it than i did Mm -hmm. bubbling I was just going to say something along the same lines. Like, I wasn't as upset about it because it felt like it was purposely pointing out that this happens. And, like, it's it wasn't, I mean, it was making fun of it, but it was also sort of because it was, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, no, I was, see, that's the trouble I had. It's hard to explain. Hard to vocalize. It's a weird balance. Yeah, like... It didn't make me feel like, oh, this is gross. It made me feel like, oh, they're trying to show in this story that this is what was happening at the time. And because it's so cartoony and over the top and very, like, cheeky to the audience, it's like, see this ridiculous setting where we don't even know what the company does? Look at how stupid they are and how they treat the secretaries when you have, like, a character like Rosemary who is actually, like... A really solid character and not Great your person. typical like secretary like she is smart and gets out there and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff but uh i don't know it didn't it didn't bother me because i felt like they weren't trying to make it crude they were just it was almost like a 
look at how ridiculous this is. I can't believe yeah. that this is what's going on in the office. Great how, statement. Yeah. Yeah, you have to, the 90s version, they turn it up. So, like, the goofiness, like, goes to, like, 11. Yeah. With, like, the men going, and, like, being, like, woof, 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 and barking. Yeah. And, yeah, it's kind of, like, I think it's an attempt to say, hey, this is ridiculous. But I just right. think, I'm not sure that you can take songs like A Secretary Is Not A Toy and some of the other scenes you can and like the whole Hetty LaRue story. Oh yeah. I don't I think I was gonna bring her up. I don't yeah. think you can take it out of its time, if that makes sense. Right. I think the show is a time capsule to satire of what was happening at the time, but it still has just a little tinge no matter what you do. Yeah. I think you're right. I think if anybody tried to do it and modernize it and tell the story in like a today's setting instead of keeping mm-hmm. it that time period, there'd be some problems. Oh, yeah. this yeah. show would fall apart in the modern day setting. If you oh, said yeah, this in 2020, it'd be like, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is interesting because that stuff is still uh, happening. You know, we it's know true. that it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and anyways, it's one of the. Uh, I hate to plug the show Mad Men, but that is one of the central. <laughs> no, you don't. Oh That's my a lie. gosh, you love it, Quinn. Have I mentioned that I <laughs> like the show Mad Men? Um, I think that's one of the core uh, progressions of the TV show Mad Men is from the beginning of the 1960s versus the end of the 1960s, and these female characters' progression through the corporate world. Um, although, yes. There is so much work to be done about gender equity in corporate America and in the professional world, Uh, not just in America, in a lot of different uh, countries. I think it is a different ball game from this specific moment that this movie is speaking to. And you're you're faced with a choice. Do you soften it and package it and try and put a smile on it and say, it's okay, you don't have to feel bad, it's just a movie. Or do you actually pay reverence to the issue and say, this Mm. is happening. You know, and different audience members, perhaps who have experienced this very real issue will see these scenes differently. So it's a hard choice to tackle. And I don't know what the right answer is. And I think the the book does redeem itself, whereas, you know, as the story continues, you know, that type of behavior isn't rewarded necessarily. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same side of the different side of the same coin using. Hetty LaRue as the butt of the of jokes here left, right, and center, you know. And they just th- so spoiler, they just throw her at Wally the the boardsman, yeah. the chairman of the board. And it was yeah. just like, yeah. oh, okay. I guess but they it just seems sort like of, her goal in the story was to just to get move up. Yeah, to be at whatever the highest position is, because she just wanted like money and didn't really care. She was uh, very funny, although yeah. I think her oh, acting yeah. was, was so great. She did a very fantastic she, job. She was there for the sole purpose of being an object, though. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tr- for some of this, every choice, sure, yeah. every she was she's a, a she's an illustration of a point. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the point that I was trying to get to is that you know this show the show is very much a time capsule of when it was from you know yes which I think is true for a lot of the other Pulitzer Prize winning shows, you know, they're very much, I think it's part of the reason they win the prize because they very much make shine a mirror against, you know, what's happening currently. I'm um, going to say it. You guys ever listen to uh, the musical Fiorello? Don't nope. take us down another, re- we've had enough. So many <laughs> it's not that good, but all to say, the music is not <laughs> that memorable, but because it's such a of its time moment about New York City politics, I think is why it won yeah. the Pulitzer. That's all I want to say. Mm. 
it's interesting because the the show is very early 60s and the movie is late 60s. Yes. And we know that by that point in history, the world had changed a lot in those six years. Boy. You know? And so I think there are elements that probably shifted in perspective by the time they made the movie. I think a lot of things like color palette and yeah. New York City exterior is included yeah. more and hairstyle is different and mm-hmm. dress. I mean, small Definitely. details are I very mean, different. We've got this. We've got the secretaries walking around in like pigtails and stuff like that, which were definitely not a thing in 61 that became a thing by the time we got to 67. I think 67 had more of an emphasis. Like 61 is more like Americana, but 67 New York is more urbane. It's more sophisticated, you know? And I think that it's portrayed a little bit more in the style. Hey, Elizabeth, you have anything to tell us about the film? Sure, I can tell you things about the film. Oh, goody. Here we go. All righty. It was released in 1967, and uh, the film was produced by United Artists, which was later purchased by MGM. It was directed by David Swift, with original staging by Quinn's guy, Bob Fosse. He actually got credit. He did. Yeah, boy. in the movie credits. And the cast includes, as we've mentioned before, uh, Robert Morris and Rudy Valley. Is it Valley? It is. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they are both reprising their original Broadway roles. And we also have Michelle Lee, Anthony Teague, and Tucker Smith, who is was later in West Side Story as Ice. <gasps> I or, did not know I thought that. It was, uh, I was, thought it was a different gang member. But yeah, he's oh, in the... maybe it's not Ice. I don't think he's Iceman. He's, okay. Uh, yeah, but he's one of the, he's one of the Jets. Yeah. He's in an... He's un he's in an uncredited role in this movie, but then he went on to West Side Story. Oh, you're talking about I'm sorry because Am the I guy right? who plays Bud Frump is also in West Side Story. Oh, really? So I got confused. He yeah, is? Bud Frump is one of the background gang members. So you're probably right that the guy you're talking about is Ice. In uncredited oh, yeah. okay, character. Okay, so we have a couple West Side Story people yeah. in this movie. Okay. Which is interesting because Bud Frump is such a big part, and then in West Side Story, he's much smaller part. Huh. All right. Well. I didn't know that, so that's cool. Yeah, cool cool fact. I didn't know that at all either. But <laughs> if I watch it again, I'd probably see him. Sorry for the confusion. No, that's okay. Um, and then uh, another thing about the movie that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, the Mersh Company, which was under United Artists, they produced other movies for United Artists, like uh, my favorite comedy of all time, Some Like It Hot. Um, mm-hmm. They paid $1 million for the film rights to wow. this movie, which was like astronomical in 1964. I yeah. for rights alone. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Not wow. to mention budget. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I think they spent uh, I think two ish million, maybe two point five million on the movie. So it was a lot. It was expensive. But it's it's um, I, I hate to quote from the show, but it's a strike while the iron's hot kind of moment. It's a oh, per- for sure. if you wait yeah. too long, Although, it's going to be out of the zeitgeist and people are going to forget about it. Yeah. 6 years did go by. It's true. But I think the show became a cultural phenomenon at the time. It's just like do you imagine can you imagine going back to the year 2018 or 2017? And somebody trying to buy the Dear Evan Hansen film rights, I mean, they right. would pay it probably happened. an yeah. expediently yeah. high amount of money. Just because it's true. such a, in the, in the, a touchstone musical. 
a lot of the things I have are differences in the film versus yeah. the show. I do They're have some. Amount. Yeah, I do have a few things that are just movie alone. Like um, the when we were talking about New York exteriors in the scene when he was skipping and dancing down the street, his yes. way to work that was shot um, on location in New York City. And they used a hidden camera and a small <laughs> earpiece to cue him on his timing. And so a lot of the people walking around looking surprised and confused are not extras, but actually just people just on New York by. being no like, way. what is happening? I thought about that. <laughs> what? The, and New Yorkers, I'm sure in their typical New York way, being like, what the, what is that about? What yeah, that well, is so Moving cool. on with their day and never thinking about it. And back yeah. in the sixties, oh people dressed so nicely that you would think that they're in a movie, you know what I mean? Yeah. It totally works. They probably, some of them probably never saw the movie and just were like, hmm, what a weird thing. Yeah, they don't know that they're in a movie. Who's this right. wacky guy running down the street? What was that about? <laughs> New York's a weird place. <laughs> Imagine like watching it unknowingly like that's my grandpa. 30 years later and being like, that's the guy. <laughs> just like dawns on you. I Nobody believed me, but here it is. That's fantastic. And there I am in the suit in the corner there. <laughs> Holding the milk bottle. <laughs> this is a this is a rare instance where they carried a big chunk of the stage cast over into the movie too. Yeah, they had considered um instead of Robert Morris, they at one point had considered Dick Van Dyke, but he turned it down mm. because oh. he was like, I'm too old for this role. I don't think I'd- it would work. He could, yeah, he could do it, but he's just got a, he's always had a sensibility that's older. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't think he could, like, he could pass as an ingenue. I was surprised that Robert Morris at the time was in his 30s. I thought he was, yeah. like, 22. He was, like, a kid. <laughs> he sounds know? like, you know. Looks like a baby. I mean, yeah, that's, it worked. He's very childlike. That's film, that's film for you. You got 25-year-olds playing high schoolers and oh, whatnot. I, you know? I know. All those, like, ridiculous uh, high school movies where it's, like, you're clearly like in your twenties. You're in your twenties, and then when you get to high school as an actual person, you're like, "How come we don't look like the kids in that movie that I saw when I was like, especially <laughs> yeah. the nineties? Nineties oh high school yeah. movies. Those people are like forty. We're like, how come I don't look that cool and buff in high school? Yeah. Anyway, what's going on? Um, like, if anybody's watching Outer Banks at all on Netflix, those kids are not sixteen. No. <laughs> I'm sure. But you mentioned Robert Morris and Rudy Valley, but we also had uh, Sammy Smith, who is uh, Mr. Twimble. Oh, yeah. And Wally, uh, what's his last name? Wally Wumple? Wumple? Yeah, Wally Wumple. Um, He plays both roles in the show and the movie, and that became a tradition. Every production since has had the same person play both of those parts. He is such a funny... The chairman of the board is such a funny, like... Yeah, I didn't want to tell anybody, yeah. but I'm definitely a window washer too. I didn't <laughs> I think know, right? anybody would know. I didn't go to college. I didn't know any of these people. It's such You're a right. he switches <laughs> from like the well, something must be done about this to yeah, hey, uh, yeah. I'm from I'm from the Bronx. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. I couldn't I'm even so tell. I'm so sorry to anyone listening. That's from the Bronx. Now we also had um. Oh, Lordy. What's her name? Mr. Mr. Bigley's secretary, Mrs. Jones. Jonesy. 
Jones is also the, from the original production is in the movie. Is it Maureen um, Arthur or no? Who Ruth, who is, Ruth Cobart. Yeah, I think Maureen was. Um, God, who was she in the movie? Well, whatever. <laughs> and then we got Carl Princey, who narrated the book voice, is also from the original production. It's so funny. And just it's like so the cool. first three minutes of the movie, I, lo- I was yeah. into it. Me too. I was it's just such like, a great premise. Yes, I love it. this is going to be. And he like slips in and he rips it off and he's like, I'm yeah. here to work. All right. It's, yep. Here it is. <laughs> he's got a suit underneath, you know, ready to go. And just I think through the window. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that sets everything up perfectly. Like as far yes. as the storytelling you're going for in a movie to just do it in that beginning moment, it sets yeah. you up for the rest of the film. Like, okay, this is where we're going. And it's perfect. Yeah. And they bring it back. You know, at just the right moments yes. to like punctuate. There's a moment that's not in the show that they bring it back that I actually like better. What's that? Which is his little. It's not in the show, but in the movie, he has a little battle with the vice president of advertising where he can't seem to figure the oh, guy yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that the guy has his own copy of the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> He's reading, and I think that's so great. And then they go to the chipmunks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the whole, the it's such a 60s thing where the chipmunk has the freaking pom-pom hat and the balloon yeah. and it's just so <laughs> kooky, you know? It and was he, wonderful. He tails him to his secret meeting with his colleague. Yes, and he hears them chanting about the chipmunks and he just looks at the camera with that. one of those facial that creep, expressions. He a creepy like, face that Robert yeah. Morris like. <laughs> I'm about to end this whole man's career. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Over some chipmunks with Why pom-poms. isn't that a meme? Wow. Rip. Rip. rip the chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so. We're laughing about it now because it is so funny. Yeah. yeah. In the in the show, they just dismiss him. They're, he just. He like hints. He hints that the guy is a is a chipmunk and they just fire him. But I love that. I love that whole gag. I think it's great. I Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Did they include LBJ in the movie yes. or in the show? You know, when they like no. peep oh, into LBJ's in office and he's like, huh? I think that must That's have been a funny. Ridiculous. That must have been a I laugh. I thought that was really LBJ <laughs> for a second there. So, no, they got a really convincing guy to play him, too. It yeah. was pretty yeah, funny. It's a, in the script, it's a different president. Who Who is president? Kennedy was president in 61. It's Jack. So that's right. In the script of the musical, he says, uh, Bigley says, eh, Jonesy, make a note. Call Jack and tell him to watch out because, you know, he still gets the idea to be president. He says, wait, what did you say? Yeah. <laughs> she said, I love you. And he's like, no, before that. <laughs> yeah. President of the United States? And then he's washing his window. Oh my yeah. god, that was so fantastic. The, the gag is there, minus the actual White House. They don't, they don't go to the White House in the show, right? But um, it was great. I, I, it was such a, and so many cutaways and so many locations yeah. are just so smart in this movie. The yes. director David Swift. Uh, I don't know if you said. Did you say he also wrote the screenplay? Oh, I did not say that. Was I did the yeah. screenplay? So he, David Swift, wrote the screenplay as well as directed it. He's most famous for uh, The Parent Trap. Really? He wrote and directed both versions of The Parent Trap. Weird, because the original both Parent versions? Trap kind of feels like it, too. It's yeah. kind of oh kooky. Oh, my gosh. 
That's one of my favorite, 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 favorite movies. The so, yeah, original Parent Trap with Haley Mills. We have David Swift to thank for that. Um, oh my god! I don't David. know that he directed the '90s one, but I know for sure he wrote the '90s Parent Trap. It movie. has that kookiness too. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, kind of funny. Does. And he managed to keep the sharpness of the musical's book, and in some ways play it up in the in the movie. Yeah. To a strong T, to a very mm-hmm. like he he understood yeah. it, and that is, I I think yeah. that's all that a, a film director that is adapting a musical can do. Just understand the yeah. story. That's at mm-hmm. the base level. That's all I ask of them. You know, there's an interview with Matthew Broderick about the revival where he says, you know, a, he said the gist of what he says is the director's job is to be there and facilitate a good environment for people to create, and I think. That's probably what happened on the movie because, you know, you got this this force of nature, Robert Morse, doing his thing in this part that's like tailor made for him. And, you know, and you could totally fight that as a film director and try to like contain it. It's not in my theory. It doesn't match my. But he just goes with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's mature. Yeah. And they did do a couple things to change. Uh things here and there between the Broadway version and the yeah. movie. Like uh the Broadway version of Finch has sort of more of an edge to him, but the movie producers and I'm sure the director also felt like they had to make him more likable, so they made him nicer so that way the audience would follow him more instead mm-hmm. of just thinking he was like a huge jerk. On stage he's really oblivious. Like Yeah. Rosemary'll be like I broke up with you once before, and I'm sorry. And he's like, you what? Yeah. <laughs> like, he's totally, like, one track trying to take over. And I think that carries over. That get, apparently, the original play version before it was a musical, he ended up blaming everybody, taking Bigley's job, and getting heady cause, because uh, Rosemary breaks up with him. So, like, I, I think am that so glad that didn't happen. That. Oh, wow. No, yeah. Where he's, but even so, without that, in the show, he's very much like driven and doesn't really care about anybody else. And I, it agree, it is he's a lot softer in the movie. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Rosemary, pretty much all of her songs are yeah. not in the movie. No. Yeah. I'd argue, I'd argue that they kind of eliminate her as a yeah. character from the movie. Yeah. yeah. I feel like she was more of just like a, like a a love subplot rather than like an actual part of mm-hmm. the plot like i feel like you could entirely eliminate her character i mean just for the sake of if we're honest she is just a love subplot yes <laughs> yeah i do but like she has, her character i, I mean, do too yeah she think... has some purpose in the stage version though i feel like in the movie you could completely eliminate her for and me, it wouldn't the... change anything about the plot right yeah for me, the biggest way they neuter her in the movie as a character is they take away uh, wh- uh, Happy to Keep His Dinner Warm. Yes. Which she sings. It's like the second song in the show. Which um, includes her which actually, in the satire. It, that's the exact same thing that happened to Tub Tim in the King and I movie, but that's neither here nor there. Second song, they cut it. Her character has less meaning. Um, because I felt watching the movie, like Rosemary just keeps popping up out of nowhere and being like, hey, like... Yeah, like I, I love like you. you. Like you want to be friends. Whereas in the show, they use this song to explain, like, I don't care if he doesn't love me. I'm gonna love him anyways, and he's gonna be my husband. She becomes part of advancing the satire of the yeah. show, 
versus just she has being a line present. where she says uh he looks right through me and you know i I'll bask in the glow of his perfectly understandable neglect like <laughs> <laughs> and like it totally makes more sense whereas in the movie I feel like she just kind of keeps popping up and is like oh hey that's how you true Ponty I wonder yeah, why her they, character annoyed me in the movie. To she be has honest. like three other solo songs in the show that they cut from the movie. Yeah, they gave her instead in the movie "I Believe in You." Oh yeah, that's right. So she sings that now to Finch, but that's in the it? show he just sings it to himself. Right, and now in the movie the reprises um, him singing it to himself after he's heard Rosemary sing it when he's in the yeah. washroom. But it's odd. It's an odd choice. Yeah. I guess it endears them to one another. I guess I so. I guess, yeah. I mean, he he probably, honestly, his character probably forgets that she says any of those things to him. Yeah. <laughs> He's moving on. Truly, yeah. Um, he truly is just some guy who wandered in from the window. Yeah, quite yeah. literally. <laughs> they do have some great dialogue between each other where he's like, man, I'm just not moving on. And she's like, You've been here for two hours. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That was really good. I don't know how fast this is supposed to go. (laughs) Uh, They also cut, uh, they allude to, but they cut coffee break. Yes. And the reason for that, they actually did film it, but unfortunately it has been lost and will never be seen again. Um, But it does exist on the soundtrack. So it was recorded uh, the audio exists, but I guess the picture did not survive. And oh. the reason that they had to cut it was that um, for the premiere, which would be at Radio City Music Hall, mm-hmm. it had a strict two-hour limit on films. Uh. And oh. so it's a pretty apparent, obvious cut when the coffee guy comes in. It's yeah. like, coffee break, and then it just cuts and goes on to something else. Also, That's that right. scene with the girls like getting ready was hilarious. I was dying at some of the like ridiculous like hair hairspray stuff. Things and the you eyelashes. did for looks in the sixties. The sixties. Oh, it was hilarious. <laughs> um, but yeah, they cut that song to fit the time frame, and because as far as most of the songs went, that one does not advance the plot at all. No, that's it's, true. It's a fun song, but it literally has does not do anything and it doesn't involve any of the main characters so they were like well i guess we'll just have to cut it it's a dance break song yeah Yeah. it's easy to cut for the film but they didn't do it seamlessly and so it was it was noticed even though it it was the obvious cut to make if they had a time limit i was think for the most part they made wise cuts oh me too Mm -hmm. i thought the cuts that they made i was totally fine with it made perfect sense for the story of the movie and it never made me lose any enjoyment after seeing Mm -hmm. the stage version. I was like, oh, this is fine. Um, I did miss some of the dances. Like, there weren't really any dances in the movie. There were a couple little here and there, but nothing phenomenal. But it was still, it still worked really well. I'm trying to think. The only place, the only place you really get dancing is Secretary is not a toy. Yeah, that's true. Doing this lean. Yeah, I can't think. Are there any other numbers that I'm forgetting? I Where don't they really think dance. So. That's no. just kind of march. To memory. Yeah, it's the it's more blocking. It's not, yeah. it's not dancing. Mm-hmm. It's musical staging. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can I That's just great. say as well? I feel like there's no like denouement, like closing moment. It just sort oh, no. of like it just goes. They shake the hands. Credits. 
Yeah. And I feel like I would have liked more of a breath or more of a like, wow, what a great movie. Instead, I'm just sort of like, it's over. But that's probably a timing choice, though, in my opinion. That's true. Yeah. It gives me such a 60s vibe, though. Like, mm -hmm. when I think of, like, 60s comedies, like, they cut to, like, a weird, like, cutaway. Like, for instance, this him climbing through the president's window. Like, and then that's the end of the movie. Like, da, da, da. Like, that feels so 60s to me. Yeah. Uh, like, in some like it hot, they're going off on a speedboat. And the, they didn't even really know what to do. And the guy just says, well, nobody's perfect. And then it's just like, the end. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, if you haven't seen that movie, see that movie. I have not seen it. That's... That's one of the other changes, though, from the show is the ending of this uh, slightly. Because um, in the show, uh, Roseberry has other things to do. So I think in this one, they're like, we'll throw her a bone and we'll have her be like, no, Ponty, I'll leave you if you don't come clean and do the right thing. Oh, yeah. Whereas in the show, he doesn't give a lick about the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, I guess I just have to go t take what's coming to me. Whereas in this, he like, has a moral dilemma, sort of. But then like at the same time, she's like, Oh, it's fine that you didn't actually do what I told you to do. I'll still love you. <laughs> yeah. The end. You know, yeah. It's a it's a it's a odd ending. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're part of a brotherhood of men. It's cool then. Yeah. <laughs> what that a makes hilarious. Sense. Like as cool as cool as the big dance break is and like the Daniel Radcliffe version, I do love me some old men in suits running around kicking their legs and going, Oh yeah. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I just, that song is so wacky. It's like, what yeah. the heck What does this is have this? to do with anything? Why? It's so fun. It's just his babble, him babbling his way out of the problem, you know? There's so many, like, s such good moments. Most of the times where he transitions from position to position are so sharp and so good. In the movie, they break the fourth wall. And in the show, you know, there's like a ding and like a light shift. Yeah. Love. Um, but like, <laughs> where he's like, you mean you're a window washer? <laughs> like, I me too. And like, he's about to sign the resignation letter. Like, that's it. You know, it's over. And he's like, oh, hey. It's like that the, turn he also, does and the smile every time. It's just yeah. so good. Also, the guy, the guy who's walking around with the resignation and he's like, yeah. somebody's got to sign it. Sign it. <laughs> yeah. the guy, the, uh, do they do it in the movie? Because the most recent thing I watched was the show. In the show, they have a guy like bend over as a table. They like right no. on his back. Oh, I don't know if I saw that in the movie or not. I, I have to rewatch it. He tries it. to give it to Bigley and he's like, get that out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> or the, uh, oh man, the little, the funny little random guillotine take when yes, he sends that was so Hetty funny. over to get the guy fired and it pans up and the guillotine just goes. Foom. Smart. That is smart cinematography or yeah, smart yeah. film. Because it matches up with a set piece in the movie, in yeah. the room. You yeah, know, uh, that was an excellent editing choice. Big fan. It's yeah. so very fresh. 60s. And there's there's just so many little great moments like that where they really use. Honestly, they do like the thing that we like to see. They use the medium to their advantage, I think. Oh, mm -hmm. totally. They use all of the cinematography, the cuts, everything to mm -hmm. their advantage. Yeah. Of like, I don't know. It was so funny. I loved it. Something that I just remember when we were talking about the filmmaking in the credits, uh, Mary Blair, the Disney legend. Uh, she is did credited the, the colors. Color. Yeah. So what does that entail? Did oh she colorize gosh. it like Technicolor or did she like um, choose the, I mean, the color she palette? Is, like that's what she's known for is her color theory, like her ability. And you can totally see it 
honestly, I think it has, it, in the case of this, it's production design. Yeah. yeah. You can totally see, like, she's the only one that you'll see is comfortable with pairing, like, pea green and pink. Like, yes. it works. Like, you know, like, she she knows how to find just the right shades of colors and put them together. And it, you know, it's just very her. For mm-hmm. those of you who don't know, uh, Mary Blair is most famous for the design and the look of It's a Small World. Love or hate the ride, the design and the aesthetic is all her. You know, that color, the, just the colors that she uses, as well as many of your favorite Disney films. You can, it, I mean, her eye and her visual choices are iconic. I mean, you, there's yeah. no other way to describe it. I mean, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, like a lot of those movies, the color and the look that they have is all established by her. I, I would even go as far to say is era defining. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's what I was about to say. When you look at this movie, you think, oh, it's the 60s. And, you know, all you you forgive some of these color choices that nowadays people will be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, like, they were bold. Mm-hmm. I kind of miss that. And you kind of yeah. you look at an old like Sears catalog or uh, whenever I do like costume research or like period research for the 60s, you look at stuff and it's like, how did they think that was anything other than the tackiest thing on earth but that's the time i mean especially in the late 60s and gentlemen's hair i don't know but i think that's just sort of like uh because they they want they were so obsessed with the idea of just being modern you know i mean the 60s is the beginning of you know all these artificial materials being used for manufacture like really really being disseminated out into the world like you know? polyester and things yeah. like that plastics polyesters you know mm-hmm. that forward v- optimistic view of the future was very big and they were trying to push towards that you know at the detriment in some cases of tearing down things from the past it's like no this is old we are making something new and fresh <laughs> what do you guys think of their choice once a musical number begins between two people they just sort of focus on that and then everybody freezes in the background. Yeah, they get like everybody goes into like a uh, a tableau. I guess it's kind of I don't know. I feel like if they I guess it's a way to avoid constant choreography if you're trying to be more like realistic, quote unquote. Like I, I don't know. It's a contrast I like for it. sure. Yeah, because talk about like most musicals where it's. A realistic presentation, realistic presentation, a number hits, and then everybody breaks out in song and they throw stuff and it's energetic. But this is sort of the other way around where mm-hmm. they're wacky, 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 wacky. And then sort of the energy and the kinetic uh, pacing sort of takes a breather. There's a song, mm-hmm. there's characterization, and then there continues on with the story. So that's, that's a, a, different, a different choice, more so in the movie specifically yeah but uh although i thought it was only a, a few, cool like chorus numbers there's a lot of solo numbers there's a lot of parking or bark, like or know. duets you know and you so like it'll really focus down to just two characters yeah i almost felt like when everybody froze it almost felt like it would have been like a lighting cue on stage where they would have just dimmed yeah. them and focused more on who was singing so instead for the movie they just ended up freezing Mm-hmm. Man, and I really missed this. I didn't notice this at all. The freezing? I'm trying to think about it. I didn't notice. Oh, it, oh, happened, it happened in the mailroom. My my favorite part is when they purposely almost brought attention to it in the washroom mm-hmm. when he's singing in the mirror. And then he turns and the guys are like still frozen and he's kind of like, okay, weird. And then they go about their business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was so That's funny. That's true. I, I, didn't, I noticed it in I Believe in You. 
but I assume that's just how it was done because that's how it is on stage too. Oh. They like are on stage and then they freeze while he sings the solo part. But I didn't notice it the rest of the show. I mean, I think they froze so that way you wouldn't pay attention to them and you'd focus on what was going on. So clearly they did a good job because you didn't notice. So it must yeah, have worked. I was paying attention to what was going on. I was watching Robert Morse place his forehead on people's shins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, like all sorts of stuff. <laughs> And just his face, he was just his like, nose got very on. close to other noses. And other people were doing it too. They were just all in each other's personal space, real tight. Yeah, there's even one time when I think he's close to Rosemary, and they're singing that uh, like he's thinking, she's thinking, mm-hmm. and they're so close that when he says something, I see her like hair like blow up because <laughs> they're so close. Uh, all in all, I think it's a great film. I think um, yeah, the translation from stage to screen worked well in that they, I think they tried to not fix what it wasn't broke, you know? They, yeah. They took, they took the cast, they took the production team and said, all right, how do we, how do we put this on screen? And it worked. I think there's a personal soft spot in my mind for a show that just has such sweeping wide shots of New York City and it's old fashioned and everyone's wearing cool suits and there's old timey cars. I don't know. Part of that was just cool. You know, it's a cool movie. Those are the most realistic parts of the film, too, is when they go outside because you can't you can't really art direct New York. No, it's going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, right. But it was cool. I loved it. Me too. Yeah. I don't know why this is, but if you ever noticed in old film, whenever they go from a studio to a location, the camera quality changes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's more and grainy. I, never I think. why that was. Why can't you just take what was in the studio and move it outside? I don't know. It might what, be a lighting thing. Y- yeah. yeah. What, what I would assume is that when you're outside, you have to deal with the exposure of the sun and you have no control over it whatsoever. When you're True. in a studio, you can decide how intense you want the lighting to be. When you're outside, when it's so intense, you really yeah. have to push down, like, your exposure and your ISO and your shutter. And so I think all of those changes in the camera really show Mm -hmm. thin because it's much harder to match. And like, sorry, I'm going in sort of a rant, but in more modern movies, um, if you're going to film... (laughs) I will quit out. In uh, more modern movies, if you have the budget for it, what you can do is... Um, rent something that's almost like a giant screen that yeah. you put sort of above everything. You have diffusion and yes, and, and, and so it blocks out some of the harsh light, and so it's easier to match what you think like a studio would also look like. But yeah. I would imagine what they were doing at the time, they probably weren't able to just section off a part of New York City for these couple of shots. True. And so. They just had whatever the lighting was on that day and had to deal with it and adjust as best they could. This is all a guess, but... No, I, I think you're right. I don't. Th- I think probably uh, film lighting hadn't quite progressed to the point of that, you know, that level of, of bounce and blocking and right. flagging and cards, you know, like they had some of that, but, you know, they're also back then, you know, you're not, you're not carrying, you know, they, it's all like 20,000 watt. Fresnels just rolling around. It still is sometimes. Right. I know. Isn't that crazy? Unreal amount of All power. All that to say, the the methods of controlling light are that that makes total sense. I was, I've just noticed that forever. I just yeah. remember watching Sesame Street and be like, why does it look different all of a sudden when they're outside? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's a fascinating. Street outside? So confusing. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think it's probably, it really is a budget thing, huh? It's a combination yes. between being able to control light. I feel like it probably also has to do with film, the film stock. Also, oh, yeah. yeah, in cameras, you can just tweak the settings nowadays, right? And just turn a knob yes. and it's yeah. brighter. I don't know. Nowadays, you can do everything digitally and not even have to worry about film if you want. But yeah, then you really have to be careful because you have just a film reel. And if you mess it up, then you're yeah, SOL. Well. Like, you're that's a lot of money. Yeah. It's interesting to go from the pedicured, very highly designed look of the interiors of this movie to the exteriors, which are very much New York being New York. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'll say that that works really well for the mise-en-scene of the movie because you've got mm. like the outside typical normal world and then you go into this business, which is just like, mm. which is a ridiculous, fantastical uh, satire of it. So yeah. I think that that worked really well, actually. It's fun. It's kind of like a bubble. You enter the office yeah. and it's like, what is this circus around me? You know, right. the corporate world. As is soon its as own he pops thing. through that window, <laughs> I was like, what am I in for? Yeah. <laughs> You're totally right. And that works. That just kind of works to frame the, the theme. You know, it's yeah. The corporate world is its own thing. And like, that's that's why you can write a book about how to rise through it without ever having to actually do any work. I got to read that book. It's It's probably super funny. Apparently, (laughs) apparently the, uh, yeah, the book that it's based on, it was written by a guy with exactly the same story. So the, so they kind of took the story of Shepard Mead, the author who started in the mailroom and ended up as a vice president. Um, and they kind of parodied that for the show. That's cool. I didn't know that fact at all, but how smart. I mean, because, yeah, the, the book itself is literally just a self-help book, but it's funny. What to do when you're blah, 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 blah. Apparently, it is also a time capsule. You know, it's, it's kind of rampant with misogyny. Well, and, the know, book is from the 50s, correct? 50s. And he started writing it in the 30s, I believe, on weekends and in his spare time. Eesh, that was a, a scary time. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how this can be equally a satire and a commentary on as well as a fantasy of this time period all in one yeah you know Mm -hmm. because this is definitely a fantasy and it does put a little bit of a brighter spin on something that was real you know real cutthroat yeah but at the same time it calls it out for being cutthroat in the same swoop i think it's very well done so, that's yeah, a, that's satire for you. Yeah, it's satire. It's hard to do all of those dramatic elements at the same time. Yeah, it's that's a difficult juggling act. When you think satire, you know, satire satire tends to be more biting and and cold, at least stereotypically in your like head. Like in Mjol- Whereas Moliere. This is, this is so bright and fun, you know, and it makes it it makes it enjoyable to watch. True. Yeah. Like you said, it's cool because like. Part of me kind of wants to work in this office. Like, part of me thinks it would be kind of fun, you know? Yeah. And I also kind of want to be J. Pierpont Finch, which is such a funny name. Uh, Yes. J.P. Finch. Um, But also, it's like you see it like, oh, God, what kind of circus is actually going on in business in New York City? And the businessmen who saw this show would probably die laughing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. something that's kind of funny i feel like this is like the og the office (gasps) just a 
a freaking oh. circus in a workplace with uh, people breaking the fourth wall all the time, being like, oh, God, I'm just looking at the camera like uh. <laughs> That is really smart. I didn't think about that at all. But The Office is sort of a modern spiritual successor. We all enjoyed it, I think. Great times were had by all. I would watch it again. Elizabeth talks about how one of your metrics, Elizabeth, is like, I don't know if I'd put it on again. This movie, I want to watch again tomorrow. Yeah. You know, nice. I mean, it was so funny. And so, like, I, I want to show this to everybody I know. I mean, it is unendingly rewatchable. Yeah. It's it's so sharp and so biting. And you just kind of, if it's if it were making fun of you, I feel like you would just accept it. I'd love it. Like, I'd say I deserve yeah, it. And thank all, you. This is all true. This is all true. Let's go ahead and get, move on over to our ratings. Quinn, what did you think? Overall, as a piece of cinema? Overall, as a piece of cinema, I'm going to go ahead and give it, I'll give it a nine out of 10 stenography pools. It was, <laughs> the cinematography was so, I don't know, it was just a cool movie. I loved watching it. I mean, it was really like, like, like Elizabeth likes to say, I want to watch this over and over again. I think this might be one of my new favorite movies, and I'm kind of disappointed that mm. I had seen it sooner. Like it was, and Robert Morris is such a funny guy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I and I want to now go through everything else he's ever done because I feel like I want to see what else he can do. Pull out um, uh, Rankin Bass's Jack Frost, and yeah. he's the voice of Jack Frost. <laughs> it looks like him too. Now that I think about it, yeah, it kind of does. Weird. Do I want to? I will. Hell, I'll do it. Hey man, get out of those <laughs> old claymations. Um, and as an adaptation, there are changes. They sort of did take some liberties, which usually I don't agree with. But ultimately, I think they did their duty in telling the story that is associated with this Broadway show. And as an adaptation, I'm going to go ahead and call it a 9 out of 10, too. A 9 out of 10 stenography pools of secretaries. Awesome. What are your thoughts? Elizabeth? <laughs> Debate me. <laughs> Fight him. <laughs> versus um so i agree with a lot of the things that quinn said like I, it's also a movie that i would watch again i am trying to be careful with my ratings because i i just can't rate things based on cinema alone because i know i would give it a different rating than if i were talking about my personal enjoyment of it because there's cinematically nothing wrong with it and I love it, and it probably would get like a 10 just based off of that. But for me and how I feel about the movie, I'm going to give it, I think I gave Dreamgirls a 9, I think. So nine I'm going to give 9.5. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give this one an 8 because I still love it. It doesn't have exactly the same impact, and I, I'm not as, like, thrilled. Like, after Dreamgirls, I was like, oh, I got to show this to everybody I know. Mm -hmm. This movie, it's fun, and I like it, but I'm not as, like, excited, even though it's very fun and funny, and I laughed a lot for it. So I'm just giving it a solid eight. Um, and then as far as an adaptation... They cut a lot of the songs, but it worked really well for giving it to a movie audience. And they did the thing that I always like when they use the medium correctly and don't just try and copy it scene for scene as far as the musical goes. They adapt to the medium that they have. So I'm going to give that 
a nine because I think they did a really good job. Um, I don't know how you could have done it any better. Um, but I guess just based solely off of the loss of the character of Rosemary, if I have to be nitpicky, that's the only reason I don't think I can give it a 10 out of 10. Agreed. Mads? Um, as an individual piece of cinema, I think I'm going to give it an eight because I would definitely rewatch it. It was super fun, super enjoyable, but personally, I like things that uh, make me feel. Uh, I like to watch something and like cry because <laughs> like, it's impactful. Personally. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Like Dream Girls got me. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah. But I mean, this was so enjoyable. It was so fun. Definitely an eight as an adaptation. I think I think I'm going to give it a nine for an adaptation, though, because they did such a good job of balancing the ridiculousness of it that makes it so good on stage in the theatrical medium, but also the way they edited it, the way the shots added so much to the comedic timing. It was really just excellent. I really, really, really liked it. Awesome. I agree with uh, a lot of those points. I think um, the movie is made really sharply, and um, it only improves on what was already a really well-written stage play and musical. Um, I think it only improves on that. Um, and it's just kind of, it takes what's good and doesn't, you know, doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. So I think on those merits, I'm going to give it an eight as well. Um, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that we watched it because uh, introduced me to this show, which I think the show itself will become uh, a favorite of mine going forward. I really like it. It's hilarious. Um, as an adaptation, I agree that they kind of undercut Rosemary as a character, um, but that's really, like Elizabeth said, just a nitpick. I think overall um, it takes what works from the show, like I said, and, and runs with it um, and even adds to it. So I think as an adaptation, I'm going to give it a nine, um, Dang. which I think might be one of the higher ratings that I've given. Um, it was really fun, and uh, I think... For us, it is very much like a product of its time, and we we experience it that way. But I I think I you know I think it deserves credit for being relevant and groundbreaking at some point. You know, uh, when absolutely. It was made. So uh, for all of those aspects, I think it's uh, a stellar a stellar show overall, a stellar movie, stellar show. Yeah. Any other final thoughts? I think the one big detractor for me. And once again, it might just be the time it was made. I really just wanted a little bit more of an ending. I don't know. Yeah. I just didn't get a chance to breathe. And I think what, like Elizabeth was saying, so much of the denouement in a piece of work for me is how I'll spend the rest of the day thinking about it. And when mm -hmm. you just sort of take that opportunity and chop it off and, and lose that, I don't yeah. know. I just sort of forget about it. So that was a weak point for me. So that's probably why it's not a perfect score. That's probably my biggest detractor, honestly. It's a difficult. It's a difficult story to end in because you know Ponty gets into a hairy situation, but then just as easily gets out of it, which I think is a just a continuation of how his character has played up up till now. Because mm -hmm. I'm not 
sure that he's supposed to learn a lesson. You know, in most well, nobody most learns cases, a lesson in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Most cases, we're looking for people to learn, but in this, it's you know, I think yeah. part of its statement is that nobody learns, and these things are going to just continue. They yeah, just, there's they, no tidy way to cut it off because I think they're trying to say that this is just an ongoing cycle. Right, like this is just Ooh. how you succeed in business. You don't actually learn anything mm-hmm. or try. <laughs> you just, you know, you you backstab and you climb that ladder, which is yeah. still true. You know, wow, yeah. yeah. I did not even realize the protagonist doesn't go through an arc. No, he's the not same at person all. at the beginning as he was at the end. Wow, you know, he has a Whoa. little bit of a moment of almost like come to Jesus, but. Uh, he works his way out of it. You know, he's slither. He's a slithery snake, and he he's a slippery snake, and he gets his way out. <laughs> I'm of a it. snake. As one of oh, th- this is really weird because I think this is the thing I was trying to remember. <laughs> oh boy, here we are, folks. Nobody saying anything. Not go, even. Go, go. It's one of those things where it made more sense at the time, but it applies now. Also, it's one of my favorite lines in the show where uh, Brat says. I'm not sure I would believe he was dead if I read his obituary. You know, like this character has all of the luck behind him. He's almost yeah. He's a walking um. He's a walking Deus ex machina. Like he's a walking god. He's untouchable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Um, Lightning could strike that guy and he'd be fine. Yeah. yeah. He'd just sing a song the, about while he's it, washing his windows about some brotherhood. You know? Yeah, he just he just open up his book and Walter Cronkite would tell him how to get out of it. I it think was good. You're you're right that it does end abruptly, but I'm not sure there's a tidy way to, to tie it up, and I think that's part of the point. Well, this know? is yeah. also coming from the guy who, if you have a telephone call with me, I don't say bye. I just press that this end is button. True. That's so, yeah. true. Who are you to ask us for an ending? Yeah, you exactly. <laughs> as soon as this is life. over, he'll just click end meeting. <laughs> you don't, des- <laughs> we'll be done. You don't deserve done. conversational closer. Life replicate. <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye. i think a similar thing happens in this team's other show guys and dolls which we'll talk about when we get to it you know it's just kind of in commentary i think it's always hard to wrap up and uh i don't think it's jj abrams bad i think it still is a satisfying ending um jj abrams made star trek yeah, but J.J. Abrams never knows how to finish oh, things. Oh, I get what you're... You're right, you're right, you're right. You're, I'm sorry. J. J. I, I'm really having a foolish moment. good at setups, but doesn't really uh, know how to tie things Because he just wants to say, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a whole sure. other type of film commentary. Um, oh, man. Anyways, thanks for joining <laughs> us through this uh, crazy ride of, uh, of a show. We went on more tracks than uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. Um... <laughs> You can DM me, and I will Venmo you the amount of one aspirin tablet. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In case you're still here and enjoyed listening and you want to follow us on social media, Mads, where can they find us? All righty. Our Instagram and Facebook are Stage to Screen Podcast, and our Twitter is at Stage Number Two Screen Pod. That's right. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy what you've heard, leave us a like or a rating. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get podcasts. This has been From Stage to Screen and Everything in Between, a musical, very adjacent podcast. I'm Zach. We go wide, baby. I'm Matt. <laughs> I'm Quinn. And I'm Elizabeth. 
That's us signing off. Sayonara, suckers. Hey, go. Hey, go. We'll see you all in the theater soon. Or will we?